Alex, Alex, are you ready? It's time for the 2018 San Diego Comic-Con Walk Around the Floor Experience. We're going to take you behind the scenes of some of comics' greatest artists, greatest writers, and so much more in a series of exclusive interviews. So, in the tradition of the Mary Marvel Marching Society, let's get started. Ladies and gents, yes, here we are at the wonderful 2018 World Comic Con in San Diego, of course. And here we are with one of our favorites. That's Dan Parsons. Dan's known for his long career at DC as well as his wonderful career doing Star Wars comics for the last, like, millennia. So, Dan, how's it going, buddy? It's going pretty good. I finally made it through the crowds and got to my table. Fantastic. We're joined, of course, by my cohort in crime, Alex Grand. Alex, do you have a few things you want to ask Dan? Dan, I've been a big fan for a while, and I remember we met last year. I want to talk a little bit about your Star Wars career. You've done a lot of pages. You've done over 150 issues, you said. So tell me how you got into Star Wars. I was here back in 2002, and I was promoting my self-published book, Savage Planet. It happened that Jan Dersimo was sitting down the way from me, and she had recently lost her anchor on the book. She came down and looked at my work and could see that it was highly influenced by Al Williamson, who was uh, one of the very first Star Wars artists that there are. And so she had me do a sample, basically. She contacted the Dark Horse people and had me try out for it. And I got the job, and that was back in uh, 2002, like I said. And I worked on the Star Wars books, almost every Star Wars title they had over there. And then finally finished up when they lost the license back in 2014. And you were talking about Al Williamson. So what was some of the favorite Al Williamson comics that you've read? You know, I liked his earlier stuff to some extent, like Weird Science Fantasy, other stuff maybe with when Frazetta was working with him. And that was, you know, highly influential to me. And even now going back, you know, I, I look at his style and it's, it's you know, it kind of looks really close to mine. I even like some of the later stuff too, like when uh, King Features relaunched uh, Flash Gordon. He was pencil and inking that stuff, and I, you know, I think it's you know some great. Of course, his stuff was a homage to Alex Raymond. You know, I had actually been in, even into Alex Raymond before I was into Al Williamson, so it all became like a big circle. And now, you know, basically we're all just kind of carrying the torch for Alex Raymond. That's beautiful. So, Alex Raymond's Flash Gordon. Do you feel like there is an artistic influence to the Al Williamson Star Wars and then to the Star Wars work that you've done? Uh, for sure. There's no doubt about it. As a matter of fact, even George Lucas says that, you know, Star Wars to a great extent was a homage to Flash Gordon. So for Al Williamson to work on Star Wars and then me to work on Star Wars for so long, it just has a kind of a logical train that's you know been going since the 30s. You've done inking and penciling. You can basically do it all. And you told me that you've been influenced by Wally Wood as well with some of your inking. Can you explain some of that? Yeah, Wally Wood, I love his brushwork, his use of blacks. I particularly like him over Gil Kane uh, in the late 60s. They worked together quite a bit for DC. Even some obscure stuff like this Captain Action toy comic is one of my very favorites. I have all those and... I think they made a great team, but on his own also, I think Wally Wood had, you know, a great style. Some of his figure work was a little stiff for me, you know, as a penciler, but I think just his use of black and white is probably, you know, in the top of, of all comic book creators throughout history, really. 
have you ever gone over like pencil pages of old pages from old artists and tried to ink them yourself? No, I really haven't. I mean, when I was a kid, they had that Marvel tryout book. I don't know if you remember that. So I, I did ink a couple John Romita pages. Other than that, no, I'd always just pencil and ink my own stuff until pretty much until Jan Dersima came to me and we talked about, you know, Williamson and, and Frazetta and, and the possibility of me inking her on the Star Wars stuff. So I, I know that you can illustrate pencil ink, but you can also cartoon. You've done some nice Archie-type cartooning before. So what's who are some of your influences there? Well, you know, as far as cartooning goes, I kind of adapted to that because I was never really inspired by the cartoon art. I was always more realistic, like Gil Kane, Alex Raymond, that type of thing. But I do have a degree in fine art, and I have you know been able to adapt my style to whatever is needed. In addition to doing the Archie thing you mentioned, more recently I did the, the Avatar The Last Airbender book, which you know took a little bit of a learning curve for me to learn the style. But you know it's all a matter of style, and once you study something, you can understand the style. It's just that personally, I tended to go for more of the realistic, physical, sort of the anatomy-type artists. I know that you and I have spoken about Mary Severin before, and she would just kind of like cartoon in whatever style she was working on. Is that kind of jarring to try to do that? It takes somewhat of a recalibration, but I think that you can work outside of your own personal style or what you think, you know, what you really love. It's just a matter of getting to the point where you understand that. And I think, you know, with her in particular, I, I, I liked her inking most of all also for that. Yeah. And I'd like to close out by uh, talking to you about something that I know is someone that was a real hero to you. And you've used quite a few of his characters and drawn Steve Ditko style. Yes. And I was curious if you'd ha had any stories of Steve, if you ever met him well, or... It's funny you should mention Steve Ditto because uh, he is part of the uh, Atlas Society, which uh, is kind of a Anne Rand Appreciation Society. It kind of was founded by her, and it keeps her books going. And I just did a book for them. It's called Anthem. It basically adapts Anne Rand's 1937 science fiction book. And I wanted to mention, too, like we were talking about Alex Raymond before. Well, this book was written in 37, and that was the like, peak of his period. So I really tried to key into that with the illustrations and the whole mood that I gave to the book. So it's, it's like almost like continuing a perpetual a tribute to Alex Raymond. I didn't mean to neglect Steve Didko. He's a hard guy. I don't know if you know that. He's, a, you know, he's, a, he's kind of a recluse or was until he died last uh, week or whatever it was. I can say I do have a small connection to Didko in that on my second Inkwell Award back in 2015, I won the, my second Inkwell for the Star Wars stuff, and he was also won the Hall of Fame Award. So that's a small connection to him. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dan, and I hope you have a great con. And thanks for all you do for the fans out there, and thanks for letting us talk to you a little bit from CBH. Here we are again as we go through the wonderful 2018 San Diego Comic-Con, and here we are with one of my heroes as an animator myself, and that's Larry Houston. Larry, of course, was responsible for the wonderful X-Men series of the 90s, and many of the things he did have become canon since then. So, Larry, we welcome you to the Comic Book Historians podcast. Nice to be here, guys. I'm glad you guys showed up. This is a great time to talk to all my fans and answer any questions that they have. Well, we'd like to know, can you give us a little background on how you got involved with the X-Men series, where you came from before that, and where you went after it? 
Well, let's see. The long story is going to be like we tried to sell the X-Men at Marvel Productions in the mid-80s. And I would include them into like the Spider-Man and Amazing Friends shows, trying to tease their network. Because back then it was only three networks, CBS, NBC, ABC. And we got them to sponsor a pilot called Pride of the X-Men. And where we did Kitty Pride and Colossus and the whole nine yards. And we we got the Japanese to do a really good production. We got really good characters, actors to do characters, and it didn't sell. And so we were kind of real disappointed. But what happened was my boss at Marvel Productions was Stan Lee and Margaret Lesh. Fast forward about six years, Margaret became the head of Fox Kids. And then when she became that head, she could greenlight it on her own. And so she gave me a call, and, and Will Minio and Eric, and we said, let's do the X-Men show. And that's how we got it on the air. You know, Margaret Lesh was the real reason it got on the air. And a lot of people above her didn't believe in the show, but they let her greenlight the show. And a lot of people didn't have faith that it was going to succeed. And we had, you got to remember, back then the internet, there was in, no internet. There's no likes, dislikes, none of that stuff. So we had to fly by the seat of our pants and create a show that as you know what a fanboy would want to see but we kind of you blended it with being a fan but also being a professional because i had been directing cartoon shows for about 12 years before i got the chance to do the x-men and so i was able to bring to blend both of those disciplines together and do a show that i thought this is a show if i was a kid i would want to see it and so that's what i did and my philosophy in doing the X-Men is that you have to adapt when you take going from a book to a movie, a book to a TV. But my philosophy is that you only change things if you have to. Don't change things because you can. And so I would bring in my comic book collections and put it on a Xerox machine so we could make sure we got all the costumes correct. And because I knew all the, I was a, a geek and I used to read all the stuff from the 60s all the way up forward. I knew all the relationships, who was the brother, the sister, who hated this person, who loved that person, and all that stuff. So I had all this useless trivia in my head so that when the shows were being written, I would hand out the scripts, the storyboards. I knew what would work, what didn't work, and I could tell the artist, do this, don't do that, blow this up, you know, make this more emphasis on this, less emphasis on that. So I was able to creatively guide the show and course correct as needed to make sure the show follow the comic books as closely as possible so that's what i did one of my favorite episodes larry you might remember this one it was when storm and wolverine were in an alternate uh, dimension or it was like a different timeline and they were in love but to restore the timeline they had to sacrifice their love i'm not kidding i was a teenager i actually cried a little bit <laughs> at the end of that episode i'm not kidding but one thing i want to ask you is why do you think pride of the x-men didn't get green lit because I, I loved that as a kid myself will minio and rick holberg we were all kind of puzzled. We put our best foot forward. We thought we had put together a show that met everybody's what they wanted at the time. And we tried to make it into an as accurate as we could, you know, an ex, a Marvel show. It was a mystery to us. I, I think at the time, it just didn't click with the upper management. And it didn't click with the toy company, which actually was funding the pilot. It, it just didn't hit. And it wasn't until we got onto Fox. One of the things I, I like to I, I talk about like to remind people is that when we're doing the x-men we wanted to make sure we had an excellent show and we were getting a lot of crap from overseas and so we talked to margaret lesh who's the head of fox and she got on their butts and said look you guys are going to do a good job and so the show actually should have came out in september but because we required them to do good work 
It didn't come out to January. And guess what? By January, all the other shows were in rerun. We were the only new show. So the show had a really good chance to be sampled by a lot of kids, and it took off from that point forward. So it really worked out. It wasn't by design. It was by accident. But all the stars aligned (laughs) at the right time to make What what I loved about it, I have to say, is you kept the soap opera-ness of Marvel Comics in the fact that you made sure you had the relationships, you had the angst, you had all of the drive in the TV show. That was part of your plan also, wasn't it? And that's why it was such a serialized phenomenon, because you did follow some pretty intricate and long-term storylines. And that was new for animation 20 years ago, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And, and a lot of that you have to put at the footsteps of Eric and Julia Lewall, which is the guys who are next to me. One of the things we all wanted to do was like, don't write down to kids, write up to kids in terms of levels of sophistication. Because in the beginning, when they see it, they'll see the flash, they'll see the explosions. But on later viewings, they'll catch the subtext of the adult relationships going on. And there's more enjoyment when they see it again, because they're seeing something they didn't see before. So we, that's what we wanted to do is always write up the kids. Don't write down. Don't add. Don't make it silly and stupid. You know, what I also wanted to talk to you about is it still plays today. It still it still is just as good as it was 20 years ago. And I think that's a testament to your wonderful direction and the fact that you had this vision, epic vision in my terms. And I think that you created something that is still to this day, something that's not dated. It really tells the Marvel stories the way they should be. Honestly, it's a testament to you as a fan and as someone who made sure that you were quality-oriented, you wanted to bring it to the kids and not give them baby art or baby storyline. We did not want to write down to the audience. We wanted to make sure that the stories were accurate as we could. You know, like Days of Future Past, because it was Saturday morning, you really couldn't kill people, but we adapted the stories as best we could to try and evoke the same feeling without showing what we couldn't show on on Saturday morning. So we tried to make the story sophisticated. And like I said, we only change things if we had to. If we didn't have to, we just followed the books. And that was my philosophy, and that was Eric's philosophy, and that's how we got everything on the air. We're really proud that kids responded as as well they did because we had no idea anybody liked what we did after the first season. I mean, for me, my personal favorite was the last episode of the first season because I figured that was my last shot. And so I wanted to go out with a bang. I had Wolverine. I'd had tons of Sentinels. I added stuff in that wasn't in the script. I moved stuff around, you know, dialogue that might have been in the middle of the show. I moved it to the end of the show. Like when Magneto helps Xavier, that wasn't in the script. I added that. And so I wanted to show that bond in between, like, these two frenemies. Yes together and that's where i established that because that dialogue where he says they talk to each other that was actually in the middle of the show and i said no no put it over here well the wonderful thing about that is is that from what you're saying i can now put it together in my mind but that was the springboard to the rest of the series wasn't it because you poured so much into that sentinel last episode of the first season that then you had a great direction to go from there and you had the strength of everyone behind you because it was a hit the very last episode of the first season, the last scenes were of them on a picnic. They're talking about getting married and we're going to have kids. And it ends on them saying, we don't know what the future holds. And it goes out on the sunset. That was it. But then when we got the pickup 
they moved stuff around and added sinister as an overlay because suddenly said you got another you got another thirteen and so they had in post production we made up that quick overlay to try to try and show that something else is coming for voting but that's you know thirteen episode was my favorite out of not all of them but it's it's up there well what are you doing now Larry what I'm doing now is that I retired last year. And I am doing conventions like here at San Diego Comic-Con and other shows. I'm trying to get booked to go to different places around the country. I'm selling autographed copies of the X-Men. And back before I got into animation, I used to publish my own comic book for my own pleasure called The Enforcers. It was a black and white thing I did. You know, it was kind of fun, my own version of superheroes. And what I've done now, I, I, made a, I have a color copy. It's like a 90-page graphic novel. I literally got it from the printer and just barely got it here to the convention and i'm going to try and sell it here and i'm also going to have a place where you can buy it online so you can get copies online and eventually probably get a digital copy but you can buy the hard copy it's going to be at indie planets but i haven't set up all the protocols yet but that'll be where you can get it from fantastic well you know we want to thank you so much for talking to us and Man, we hope you have a great con, and we'll be back to talk to you next year. So thank you so much, Larry Houston. Thank you, sir. Thanks for inviting me. Over. Okay, everybody. Yes, we're back yet again for the Comic Book Historians podcast on the road to San Diego 2018. Actually, we're here, so it's not on the road. It's we're, We've been on the road. We're here. So this morning, I am so, 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 so excited to bring you the one, the only heir to the Batman throne, as it were, and that is Athena Finger, the granddaughter of Bill Finger, who's the co-creator of Batman. Athena, we've been friends for a long time. I can't tell you how excited we are to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. That's great. Well, Alex and I have a lot of questions for you, of course. But first off, I'd like you to tell the tale of how everything has happened in the last few years, how you've gone from obscurity where no one knew Bill and now everyone knows Bill basically, or most people know Bill because of the wonderful Hulu documentary, Batman and Bill, which I love the title, by the way, as a Bill. So I was wondering if you could give us just a brief or not so brief synopsis of everything that's happened to you and happened to the finger name in just the last few years. Oh, it's been kind of (laughs) crazy. Since we got credit, the fan base has been reaching out and celebrating, and especially with the documentary, I've had fans and non-fans reaching out to me and saying, wow, this is an amazing story, heartbreaking, but so happy at the end, and that part's been awesome. I've been active with my own art. I've been going to conventions a lot, of course, talking about Bill and showing my art and talking Batman. So it's been a little crazy. Athena, we were talking earlier, and you were saying that your dad, who knew Bill, passed on some information about what were some of Bill Finger's influences in creating Batman. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. Uh, Bill was huge into research for every story. So he would read comics that were out before Batman and Superman. I know that they were influenced by like The Shadow and Dick Tracy. Zorro was another big influence. And then there was also, you know, it wasn't just what that medium that was out there that they were really looking at. He was also into sci-fi and horror and pulp noir and, and all kinds of really obscure, off-the-cuff kind of 
culture stuff. He was really big into going to museums, even just like riding the train or the bus and getting inspiration from the city because he lived in New York. So, I mean, he really pulled a lot of influences from a lot of different areas. Has it been fun for you looking into some of the stuff he enjoyed watching and creating Batman? Have you looked into any of that stuff that he was into? Some of it. I mean, a lot of it's really old. Some of it's hard to find. But I mean, my dad used to take me to stuff all the time as a kid. I mean, I grew up watching horror and sci-fi. So, I mean, he kind of just carried that through and like, he said, you should look at this movie versus that movie. And you know, things like that, he would definitely suggest. And then, you know, my dad was big into dinosaurs. So again, the museums, he would take me to museums all the time. The Natural History Museum in New York was his favorite. So a lot of that carried through. So your dad was also into pop culture as well? He was. Growing up, he was a painter. And then he dropped out of college and then decided to study culinary. He was a self-taught chef and was very successful with that. You were talking about it in the documentary that when you were a kid and before Bill Finger got a credit, you would tell people, oh, my grandpa helped co-create Batman. Sometimes people wouldn't believe you when you would say that. Tell us about that growing up. Well, more so when I was a child, people questioned it. Again, not having the internet or even the plethora of books and magazines that we have documenting Bill's story now, people did question it. So I stopped talking about it for a very long time. There were select people that I would talk to about it. And they were like, oh, I know who you're talking about. Or, oh, I'm going to go read about it or whatever. They, So I knew who was receptive to it and who wasn't. It wasn't until Mark Tyler Nobleman got in touch with me that I started talking about it again. Because again, I, I just, I was tired of people questioning and, and things like that. But obviously, that's not the case anymore, which is really nice. <laughs> so then did Mark Tyler Nobleman help get you started off on the road to getting the co-creator credit? Or was that already kind of in process? Well, we as a family have periodically tried to get Bill's name attached to Batman. When Mark had gotten in touch with me. Like I said, it had been almost 15 years since I had thought about it or talked about the Batman issue. So, you know, it took a little bit for me to get back into approaching the subject. And then even then, it took like another almost 10 years to get it resolved to actually have Bill's name attached. So it's been a real process. As far as Bill Finger and his relationship with Bob Kane. Do you have any stories from your dad as far as how they got along exactly or the nature of their relationship? Did it start out as a friendship or or, or what? Or was it just like an employee-employer thing? What exactly was that, if you know about it? I don't recall any stories that my dad told me. But I mean, from what I've heard from various sources, they were f- friends, quote-unquote. But I mean, Bill was his employee for a, a while. and And so I guess the... You know, it was a weird dynamic between the two of them because, again, you know, Bob took credit for everything that Bill did. So that I'm sure that created some hostility in the work environment. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that, the, you know, once everything got rolling with Batman and Bill could really see what Bob was doing, that it kind of made him not want to associate with him anymore. But I can't speak for them. I wasn't there. A lot of people realize this, and I think it's touched upon in Batman and Bill. In the late 60s, of course, after the camp 
Batman sensation, people saw the monetization and the fact that here's this cash cow that DC has had for over 25 years now, and it became a little more apparent that there was big bucks behind Batman. And I think that made a lot of people more hostile, maybe in some respects, especially Bob Kane, and unfairly so in my opinion. But your grandfather went on the record, I believe, at a comic convention, and there's a lot of descriptions of that in in textual form. Then Bob came back right after that and basically called your grandfather a liar. I mean, that's that's got to be just so upsetting, especially since it was so unfounded and so untrue. And I mean, I'm just curious what you think about that. And realizing it happened 50 years ago, but I'm I'm curious what you, what your take is. Well, unfortunately, you know, Bob decided to live his lie. I mean, once you throw out there that you created this whole thing, you kind of have to go with it. If you want to have any kind of credibility, even though he has no credibility now because everybody knows the truth. But I mean, if you think about it, I mean, people, the masses didn't really know the true history of how this was created. So he just continued to live and believe the, what he felt was true. And I know that Bob is not liked in the industry very much because he was fame driven. I mean, that's really what he was looking for was the fame and the money where a lot of other People in the industry are about their actual artwork, whether it's writing or drawing or inking or coloring, whatever their their little piece is. So I think that, you know, it's not something that we should focus on. It is what it is. But now that we actually do know the truth about how this all went down, I think that's really what the focus should be on. So for the rest of this uh, segment, we'll be calling Bob Kane Bats Bengali instead of Bob Kane. I, I think that kind of puts it in a nutshell of what Bob was all about. Bat Spengali. I just like that, Bat Spengali. Alex. If, let's say, Bill was alive or you were able to have some communication with him, have you ever thought of anything that you would say to him or ask him? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's, um, I want to ask him everything. Not just about Batman, but just, like, about him. I never met him, so I don't. I don't know what his personality was like. I don't know if I'm like him or if my dad was like him. I, I think I would be more interested in, in finding out that kind of personal side of him. Yeah. Now, there's some descriptions of him being kind of shy. Have you heard anything about this at all? I haven't heard that he was – I don't know if shy is really the right word. I mean, he was kind of consumed by his art. Does that make you shy or does that make you an artist? You know, like – so, I mean, maybe I – uh, from my own perspective, I'm a little shy, but I'm also an artist. So I do tend to, you know, introvert so that I can create my art. But he seemed, you know, he was probably a little of both. He was probably like really consumed, but enjoyed being part of the world. I mean, I, it kind of goes together when you're an artist. It looks like from the volume of his work that he loved creating. And that seems to be kind of a constant with Bill Finger when we look back at everything he's done. He created so much. Okay. Now, here's one thing that we briefly talked about before we went into the interview. And uh, Alex and I are both crazy in love with this concept. But we love the fact that there's so much Dick Tracyism in a lot of the things that your grandfather created for Batman. It was 
totally original, but he went with the concept of the villains were just as important as the heroes, if not more so. And I think he's probably one of the people that pushed that, maybe even further than Chester Gould. I was curious if you could tell us anything about that. Well, I don't know details, but I'm sure it was more along the the thought process of if you kill off your villains, then what are you going to do five stories down the road? So if you have these really strong dynamic villains that your hero is constantly having to face, I think that's going to keep people coming back for more and more and more. Whereas, you know, if you kill them off every month, (laughs) what's next, you know? So I think by having that balance between the hero and and the villains is super important. And, you know, again, we always want to see what's going to happen next with these characters. So he put a lot into them. It's similar to Dick Tracy. I mean, he has a great, you know, category of villains that Dick is always going against. So I think he fell right in line with that. I would also point out that Chester Gould was notorious for killing off his villains at the end of most storylines. So then you'd have Flattop Jr. Hey, who knew? Flattop the Third. It's Mole Girl, you know, and all these offshoots, which Bill never, never did. I mean, well, there were some, there there were some children and some of the aspects of the villains but for the most part he didn't follow that because he kept them alive he did again he didn't want to harm people that was not his mission his mission was really justice so you can't really have justice if the person's dead that's really not justice (laughs) i mean that's just okay you're dead you're gone there's no you know there's no chance of you coming back but really he wanted to get justice not just for society but for the person also and help them and try to make them a better citizen or a person in in the storyline so i think that that played more of a role than you know let's just kill him off and who are we going to come up with next i guess we can also uh surmise from what you were saying that basically the fact that batman had a dinosaur in his bat cave was probably because of your dad and his love of dinosaurs wouldn't you say i'm just guessing <laughs> Probably. I mean, my dad did tell me stories about how he would read scripts that Bill was working on when he was, you know, 12, 13, that age group who he was writing for. And so, I mean, maybe he had some influence. I mean, he he would read the scripts and give his honest opinion. So I'm sure Bill threw a little bit of him in there. Now, tell the story about how your dad was almost killed by a giant penny. Joking, sorry. I'm like, what? <laughs> Bat cave joke, folks. Bat cave joke. So we're talking about villains because honestly, villains are to me the greatest aspect of Batman because I mean I can't think of any other comic book series that has villains that are so memorable. I was curious if you could tell us about why he went into so much background into every villain and you knew why they were a villain for the most part, unless he wanted to leave the mystery, which is the noir sense in him. I was curious if you could tell us anything about that. Well, again, it goes along with, he didn't just put a lot into his villains. He put a lot into every aspect of every story. Again, I think he just really wanted to make sure that he had very rich dynamic characters not just for the fans but he had to write about these people every month so you know you want to 
keep it fresh for yourself also. So I think that comes in with more of what's going on with the character behind the scenes, what's their backstory. Why are they interacting with, you know, the heroes in this way? I think that really played a lot into, you know, how he had such a great library of characters to write for. Okay, I have to ask this myself. Which is your, Athena Finger, which is your favorite villain that your grandfather created? Can you guess? I'll give you one guess. I, I'd guess, I'm going to just throw it out there. I guess the Joker. No, no, you're so wrong. Okay, I'm going to guess, I'm going to let Alex guess. Um, Clock King. Actually, my favorite villainess is Catwoman. And people are always like, why Catwoman? Well, first of all, Catwoman, I love cats. Second of all, she is not a villain and she's not a hero. She's the one that walks the line and she plays both sides. And she plays both sides because she has to protect herself in every situation. So I kind of, I relate to her in a lot of ways having to walk that line, making sure that, you know, my public life and my private life or the issue at hand or whatever it is, is always that fine line and how you're going to play both sides. So I really, I like her. Without spoilers, because some people may not have read it yet, I'm curious what you thought about DC uh, marrying uh, Batman to Selena Kyle and how you felt about that. Well, I didn't read the book, but I did see all of the hoopla about it. (laughs) I mean, it kind of makes sense, but at the same time, why marry him off? He's been a bachelor this long. But I mean, yeah. like, it makes sense, but at the same time, they can't do that. Like, in my opinion, I just don't think that Batman or Bruce Wayne is really got the lifestyle to fit the marriage, kind of, you know? Although they are both very, like, not conventional, but I mean,. How conventional for such unconventional people in general. So, I don't know. Like, I can understand, but at the same time, it's like, nah, it's just not going to (laughs) work. To quote the disco song, he loves the nightlife. (laughs) So, so on that humorous note, we're going to bring to an end this wonderful, wonderful interview we've had with Athena Finger. Athena, this has been so thought-provoking and lovely to see kind of your end run as as the struggle is now not so much a struggle. I know there's still things going on that you're trying to secure, but what do you think about, on going out note, what do you think about where you are right now and what you have left to attain? Well, I mean, there's always more. We've gotten the name attached. That was a huge victory, but now there's other things that I want to do. I want to get together uh, – scholarship for high schoolers to go into college, college scholarship for people who are in college, people who want to go into the arts or into comic book writing or or something to do with the comic medium. I also am trying to figure out how I can start a nonprofit to help artists who are not so legal or business savvy and they have a place to turn to for, you know, help with those types of issues so that they're protected and make sure that they, you know, are uh, getting all the help that they need fantastic well that sums it up folks for alex and i i'd like to say thank you athena finger and thank you for the fight that's still in you and uh the bat fight as it were but uh we want to thank you and we'll give you more soon on the road to sdcc 
2018. For the Comic Book Historians Podcast, I'm Bill Field. Okay, here we are on the world tour of SDCC 19, 2018. I'm going back in time, folks. Yes, it's me, Bill Field, your venerable host. I'm here talking to one of my favorite DC artists, the wonderful Chris Burnham. You probably know his work from Batman Incorporated, among other things. And Chris, how are you doing? Doing great. Having a good time so far. Fantastic. For the folks at home, I was wondering if you could uh, possibly give a quick rundown of your history as a comic artist. All right. Jeez. I, get, I, I started out doing work for Moonstone, actually. They're, they're a, a small horror publisher in, in Chicago. I did a couple issues of Moonstone Monsters and a, a Kolchak the Night Stalker comic, and then a, a little graphic novel called Boston Blackie Inside Out. And this, I mean, that's getting to be like 15 years ago or something. And then I, I uh, started working at Image. I, I did a couple issues of Elephant Men, a graphic novel with Joe Casey called Nixon's Pals, which is about a parole officer for supervillains, and it's awesome. You can buy it on Amazon right now. Go get it. It's rad. Then we did a book called Officer Down, which was kind of a, a, a small uh, critical hit that started getting me work at DC. I did uh, Batman Incorporated with Grant Morrison for three years. And then we did a book at Image called Nameless, which is... Uh, Super weird, super gross sci-fi horror comic. You should get that, too. And now uh, Robert Kirkman and I are working on a book called Die, Die, Die. The first issue just came out last week. It is very funny, very violent. It's kind of a Quentin Tarantino movie without the feet. It's awesome. Fantastic. And so who are your go-tos for the people that you looked up to and maybe inspired you to become an artist? Growing up, John Buscema was my, uh, my shining light. How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way is, I still think, the best book on how to draw comics you know, at all. But I got a little bit older. Uh, Jack Kirby uh, became a favorite of mine. Walt Simonson, uh, Eric Larson, Tetsuo Hara, the Fist of the North Star guy, was a big influence on me for panel-to-panel action. I got my hands on a fair amount of untranslated uh, you know, Japanese editions of Fist of the North Star, Hokuto no Ken. And so being able to just look at that stuff with, like, I couldn't read it if I tried. So just being able to follow the, uh, you know, follow the panel-to-panel action, I really learned a lot about uh, visual storytelling from doing that. I mean, there's a million guys. I mean, Mobius and Frank Whiteley and Jeff Darrow, those are, those are probably the more uh, obvious uh, surface-level uh, influences on my style at this point. There's something to learn and, and copy from just about everyone. Of course. Now, what I'm curious about is what are some of your con moments with some of these influences? Now that you're a pro yourself... Have you met any of these people, and what were your expectations, and how did you feel about meeting them? Most of them were pretty nice. Frank Whiteley is a, a, a very nice guy. I uh, met him just like, I don't, it was just randomly. He was walking down the aisle, and I was like, oh, hey, I'm Chris Burr. I'm sorry for ripping off your style. And he was like, oh, it's fine. I'm ripping off Mobius and Darrow. It's all, it's all the same thing. I was like, okay, that's good. <laughs> that's good that you're not annoyed. Uh, but yeah, most people are nice. I, I'm, I'm a bit of a... Uh, I don't know what the word is. I'm, I'm, I'm a little socially awkward like most artists are. So I've had a couple, I've had a couple real awkward bad run-ins with some guys. Uh, Jeff Darrow and I are uh, always getting in dumb little fights and then making up. We're both, you know, kind of uh, acerbic, maybe that's the word. So we'll, we'll, we'll grade on each other and then make up again the next year. That's, that's happened <laughs> a couple times over the last 10 years. Uh, we're, we're in a friendly phase right now, which is nice. <laughs> Well, except for the projects you already mentioned, what's on your horizon? Where do you want to go with your talents? What do you want to do in the future? Oh, man, I don't know. I think just more of the same at this point, whatever the next fun idea is. Like, we're, we're rolling on Die, Die, Die for a, little, for a while. It's pretty fun. Uh, lots, of, lots of good nonsense to draw. So, you know, fun, fun action and, and character bits. Lots of subplots, which I like. So for the moment, I'm, I'm having a gay old time with this. 
who knows? I don't have any big, you know, it's not like I'm dying to draw the Fantastic Four or anything. I don't have a big dream project other than, you know, whatever, you know, idle fancy strikes me next. For the moment, Die to Die is awesome, and I'm focused on that. Working with guys like Grant Morrison and Robert Kirkman, do they bring you pretty detailed scripts? And then when you visualize them, you know, tell us a little bit about that process. Most of the time, they're, they're not too, too detailed. Like, they trust the artist to, uh, to you know, execute at our own personal style. So unless it's like a very specific little bit of business, for the most part, the descriptions are fairly bare bones. I would say the, the main difference between their two styles is at the beginning of each issue and then maybe at the beginning of a particular set piece, Grant will kind of take a page to say like, here's what we're going for thematically. Here's the weird movies and, you know, novels and comics that, you know, comics is Jesus that we're, that we're referencing. Here's what to pull from for, for this sequence. You know, with, with Kirkman, it's just like, here's the description just draw it <laughs> so like they're, they're, they're you know going for different things like you know grant's got you know greater thematic concerns at play when i, I think kirkman uh, we're just uh, trying to tell a, a fun quick you know violent story but but as far as like panel to panel for the most part they just say what happens in it and then i, I draw it <laughs> Well, Chris Burnham, we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule here at the con because it's nuts here. I just have to say, Artist Alley is really on fire, and so are you. Chris Burnham, thanks so much for being on the Comic Book Historian Podcast. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. Here we are on the road again, SDCC 2018, and we're going to go out on a limb now, folks, with Ron Lim. We're going to ask him, was Norrin rad? Was Thanos really... Well, a happy guy? Well, we're going to find out right now. Ron, how the heck are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. Hey, Ron, can you give everybody a brief history of your professional work, starting with maybe X-Mutants? X-Mutants was probably my first published work. I think I did Badger for First Comics. What did I do after that? Then I did uh, Cyforce for Marvel, and I got Surfer after that. So, so that, was a, that was my big leap from the Cyforce to Surfer. So yeah. And how many Surfer issues have you done to, to date? Do you know? I don't know the exact number, but I worked for almost six years on the title. So I think from 15 to 92. But, but the latter half, I missed a lot of issues for the Infinity stuff. So I was, I was busy with Infinity, Gauntlet, War, and then Crusade. Fantastic. How about your influences? I'm, I'm curious. Who are some of the go-tos for you as far as following their art when you were achieving your own style? Um, so Jim Starlin, of course. One of my favorites. George Perez, of course. And John Byrne. I think those are my three big artists I followed the most. Anything they drew, I would buy. Yeah. And, and now as a pro, I'm curious of your many con experiences. Who are some of the heroes you've had some of the funnest meetings with and, and people that you really admire? Oh, you I mean, like artists I've met. That I re- well, I mean, Jim Starlin, I worked with him for so many years. I don't see him that often, but when I when we hang out, it's awesome. He's a great guy. So Jim, si- Walt Simonson was fantastic to me. I only met him once, and it was great. He was super nice. Gosh, I don't know. There's so many people. Yeah, I, I don't know. My mind's going blank. <laughs> So then when you did your first work with Jim Starlin and you had read his stuff, what, in the 70s when it came out, was it like, wow, I get to work with one of my heroes? Oh, yeah. Because I was working with Steve Englehart, which was great on Surfer. And then when Jim took over, I was, like, super excited because, you know, I love Jim's stuff. And then they said, we're bringing like, Thanos with that. I'm like, what the heck? So, yeah, I mean, I, was, I almost couldn't figure out what I was going to do because I was so nervous, right? I mean, it's like working with Jim, bringing back Thanos. And I, I didn't know what was going on in the Infinity stuff, but it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, I was happy. I'm curious of the differences between the two writers' style and what they gave you, Englehart versus Starlin. Englehart works more in a Marvel style, I think plot style, if I recall correctly. <laughs> it's been a while. And then Jim works full script style. So that's a little bit different. But other than that, I mean, you know, Jim's 
Jim stuff tied more to, to his characters in the past, whereas Inglehart's kind of was more, he kind of created his own kind of universe kind of thing. About the, I mean, it's comic characters, but like he created like these other characters like Clumsy Fallop and these characters that weren't in the other stories, you know, so yeah. Where do you go from now? What are you working on currently, and where do you see yourself going in the future with the medium? Still working for Marvel, so I'm keeping busy doing that stuff. I'm doing a ton of variant covers right now. Uh, I'm doing a Spider-Man, like, uh, all-ages book for them right now. And uh, right now I'm doing a new stuff for Venom, so that's my latest, my latest stuff. So as an artist who knows every inch of Thanos' body, how did you uh, feel about the rendition of Thanos in the Infinity War movie? Oh, I loved it. I mean, you know, I was hoping that he'd be good, but I wasn't quite sure how it would turn out. So when I saw the movie, it was, yeah, it blew me away. I loved it. I mean, they captured Thanos perfectly, I thought. Yeah. And Josh Brolin got the attitude right? Oh, yeah. I mean, up until that, this movie, we just saw glimpses of him, right? So I couldn't really tell how he would play him. But after seeing the movie, yeah, he's just perfect. I, we, I was stunned. I was like, wow, they, they pulled it off, you know? Just amazing stuff. Yeah. And I think you had a lot to do with that because of the legacy that you've left with the artwork. And does that make you proud when you see the movies now? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the fact that they adapted it and used even any of our work, you know, it's, it's just it's really flattering. It's amazing to see it on the big screen, you know? So, yeah, I loved it. I was like, tears of joy. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. So, Alex, do you have anything else you'd like to add? I just want to say that one of my first stories as a kid was the Evolutionary War stuff, and I loved it. And I bought a page from you a year ago, and I look at it every now and then thinking, well, I remember the, the innocence of discovering the universe with your arts. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, and Ron, as an artist myself, I, I've looked up to you for years, and now meeting you, it's just fantastic. And I want to thank you so much for giving us a few minutes of your time today for the Comic Book Historians podcast. My pleasure. It was, it was a blast. We're here with the amazing Gurr Appledorn at San Diego 2018. And by the way, I'm Bill Field, and I'm here with Alex Grand. Alex? Hi, Bill. How's it going? We're actually at the Comic Book Defense League fundraiser, fun fundraiser. Gurr, how's it going, my friend? Well, it's, as you said, it's fun. Great. And, of course, Gurr is up tomorrow night for, for uh, the Emmy Award for in the category Archival Comics. I think that's it. Yeah. Well, for, my book, for my book, Behaving Madly. Fantastic. Yeah. And and actually, it's not an Emmy Award yet until we make it into a TV series, but it's it's an Eisner, which is the oh, comic book version. I I'm, I'm not trying to, no. I'm not trying to give you a hard time, man. Don't don't let, let my wife hear it. I've said it all all since I know I've been referring to it as an Emmy Award and my wife keeps slapping me and I I keep doing it. It's an Emmy Award to us, man, yeah. cuz we love comics like you do. How long have you been into the parody or, or humor comic? Oh, for me, uh, uh, Discovering Mad and shortly after that, Discovering Harvey Kurtzman just, just was one of the main points of my life. And when I was about 13, 14, I got my first Mad. And then you get all the, um, the Mad Pockets, you get all the older thing, and you discover Harvey Kurtzman. And then when I was 22, someone sold me every issue of Humbug. I'm a total uh, Harvey Kurtzman uh, uh, fan. So that's one of the things that led me to uh, admiring uh, uh, parody comics. For Europeans, I'm from Holland. Reading a parody of America. America in itself is a fascinating country. To read parodies about stuff from America, you get to, you get to know the essence of America by reading the parodies. I knew what a new movie was going to be about. I didn't have to go to the Poseidon Adventure because I'd read the Mad parody. So... For me, Mad is a sort of uh, thing that goes through all, all through my life. Actually, a couple of years ago, even I was the editor of the Dutch Mad, oh my and I, I got to live the dream. Yeah. 
Well, and here in America, it's actually a rite of passage for juvenile delinquents like Alex and I probably were when we picked up our first issue. And You, and, you stole them as well. I stole a couple as well. That's you know, I actually think I did. I think I stole a Star Wars issue, actually. <laughs> I didn't steal one, but I would fold the back insert without paying for it. And then I, but I would leave it on the rack. I don't know. If, I don't know if that makes me a better person than you guys. But. Sorry, I have a guilty conscience. That's what I meant too. But no, seriously, Mad and hum, was Humbug the uh, magazine that uh, Gloria Steinem was assistant editor on? That was help. That was help. That that was help. help. I always get those two mixed up because sometimes I say Humbug instead of help, and I get no help. Well, uh, so I know that when uh, Harvey Kurtzman left Mad Magazine, he worked with Hugh Hefner for a little while. On Trump Magazine for about what, like one or two issues, two and a half. There's a book out now by uh, Dennis Kitchen that has all of the material for the third issue. But Hefner got into money trouble and they skipped the whole lot and they stopped somewhere halfway the third issue. Right. But it's it's a must-have. It's a must. And Humbug, it was almost like Hefner let them kind of work in a room in his building to put that together, and it was almost like a communal comedic effort with those guys. What was your impression of Humbug when you read it? Oh, well, Hummer is pure essence of satire. It was very small. They decided to make it smaller than a comic book so that it would fall behind every other comic book in the, in the rack and no, nobody would buy it. And it's black and white and it's Jack Davis and Bill Elder and Arnold Roth doing some of the most intricate and sharply satirical work. Larry Siegel wrote a lot of it. Kurtzman still did all the layout. Just, uh, I just love that, which is, one of the things that led to my writing the book, Behaving Madly, I think I should just put a plug in here, which is what I got the Eisner, Eisner. Award <laughs> nomination <laughs> for. Uh, so it's, it's all in the same. This, this whole, yeah, around, around 1960, there's this satirical vibe. Of, I live in Holland, and in Britain you have the, the, the British comedians coming up, and in America you have Mort Saal, uh, uh, Mort Saal and, and that sort of guys. So there was what they call the satire boom. And Mad was part of that, and uh, uh, there's this whole generation that, uh, um, I say that in the, in the forward of, of, of uh, Behaving Madly, somehow, especially the baby boomers, believe that, that they invented revolt. But there's this whole generation of mostly New York Jews in the late 50s who were very slyly trying to undermine the proper society with their satirical stuff, their records and stand-up comedians and, and the magazine uh, stuff. So Kurtzman was part of that, but also all the, all the imitation issues that are featured in Behaving Madly, all this talent, they come together to, to be as, as cleverly satirical and slyly undermining as, as they could. Because you had people such as Lehrer and also Sherman doing parody yeah. albums. So the albums. Right. And Everything. And there were TV shows that were parody. Yeah. You know. And, e- and even uh, uh, Mort Walker did a Sam strip with Jerry Dumas. So they did a, a comic strip about comic strips. So even there you, you get the mainstream Mort Walker is even doing that. It's, it's all part of. Was that Sam? Sam 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 strip. And it later Sam, became oh, that's right. it later became Sam and Friends, but okay. then it wasn't satirical anymore. Right. But it, so an interesting question: you bring up satire and society, a little bit of rebellion. Do you feel like satire is a gateway toward a revolution in a way? No, I feel that uh, satire usually is a form of admiration, especially in comics. 
you can't do a parody of of uh, of Superman. You can't do Super Duperman yeah, yeah. if you don't know Superman. Yeah. And uh, that's this. And that's the, uh, what I like about drawn satire. Is it may be harsh, it may be sharp, but there's uh, somewhere you know when you feel that some artist has spent two days drawing that one page. So there's a lot of love in there as well. Yeah, right. I, I, th- I think that makes it's, it's a lot infinitely more uh, exciting than people who are kicking around and just saying the, the truth about someone. Like, I mean, I'm curious about one thing. How do you feel about the generation after MAD, how it evolved into the National Lampoon state of mind, which then begat Saturday Night Live? And that, I think all of that can be traced back to MAD, don't you? And the magazines of its ilk. It can be traced. National Lampoon was a, a unique magazine, but have you ever met anyone who's read one issue completely? I mean, there's a, there's a lot in there. I, I like it. I'd like to go back to National Lampoon and look at stuff. Sure. But I'm never going to read one from the from cover to cover. There's always there's a lot of dull text as well in there, and a lot of very good stuff. And I would like to say, for the record, my late great friend Michael Gross was the uh, art director for National Lampoon. He came up with all the covers, including the one with the. Uh, Frog with no legs, and then the dog, shoot the dog cover. And then he went on to do the special effects for Ghostbusters, both, that were fantastic. So he was a, he was a maniac. And because of Mad Magazine, all these things were possible, right? Yeah, and, and, and they had all these great uh, comic uh, imitations in there. Neil Adams did a lot of stuff. So, yeah, National Lampoon is something to go back to. I'm going to make you tell me your favorite of any, of any magazine... What's your favorite comic book satire? I'm just going to go with the first thing that uh, jumps into my mind because it impressed me a lot. That's uh, Rin Tin 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 Tin, which is in, I guess it was in Trump, which is the Hugh Hefner magazine, a Jack Davis drawn satire of uh, Rin Tin Tin. And the, and the, the format is, is very strange as well. It's, it isn't a mad movie satire or television satire. It has a very Harvey Kurtzman format of Three panel gags and then a bit of text and then a huge illustration and it's a very clever thing. My favorite would be from Crazy and that would be Casper the Dead Baby by Marie Severin. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it is so funny and it gives us an origin backstory to Casper the Friendly Ghost. Whereas we all thought it was Richie Rich when he dies, but no, it's even worse than that. Have you read that? I, I, I must have read it. I didn't re- remember it, but I, I did uh, read it. Uh, followed crazy and alex i know you have a mind like a steel trap what's your favorite satire of comics in these kind of magazines well gur said the super duper man and i've always liked that one even when i was a kid it just because i like superman as the first thing there's also a sally forth i know this is this one is the one that i also remember there's a sally forth trip that wally wood did in the early 70s where he does like a superman parody and there's also a bit of a captain marvel parody in that and it's just so funny it was like so that's what he does with his powers is that it's like so juvenile but it was funny right it's like that's a very different superman than the one i grew up with typical, so typical wood gag typical typical <laughs> wally wood yeah. yeah here's another question why do you feel cracked? Your book, Behaving Madly, is on a lot of comics that tried to be like Mad Magazine, tried to do the satire thing from all the different comic companies. Why did Cracked survive and other ones didn't? If I go by what people say is 
People say they like crack because it was a replacement drug. So Matt was once a month, six weeks even. And then uh, after a couple of weeks, you bought cracked just to to help you along until the next mad. I personally, I like the first 12 issues of Crack, which were just superb. And then Paul Aiken came along and started writing most of the stuff in Crack. And uh, it turned in uh, very much a juvenile uh, sort of magazine, which doesn't appeal to me a lot, except for the, the work of John Severin. I, I don't think it's the funniest magazine ever. So you'd say that Cracked was a substitute for Crack? In other words, I mean, you, you made the drug reference. I had to say that. Uh, you, had to, you had to say that. I'd say it was the crack of mad. Yes. <laughs> Did you include anything from, from here to insanity? No, we, we, this is the Mad Magazine imitations. But, oh, uh, not the comic. Not the comic. Okay, gotcha. I, actually, I, I want, I, I started out doing an article for Alter Eagle about, uh, Alter Ego about the comic book imitations. Gotcha. I was going to do a book about that with Craig, and it's a secret and no one should know, but then Fantagraphics brought out their own version of that. So, we had to stop. Well, you know, I dearly love them. Yes. Oh, yes. And there were a lot of comic book versions of the comic book Mad as well. Those were fantastic. Don't you think? Are there any any of those you'd like to mention? Oh, yeah. Get Lost. Uh, f- to me, I, I did this two-part articles for uh, Alter Ego. I think the first part is in issue 86. So I just described all of them. I read all of them. For me, the favorite is Whack. That's the one that was brought out by uh, St. John. Joe Kubert is in there. Norman Maurer is in there. Bill Overgaard. I thought that was one of the best to buy. So when Al Feldstein takes over Mad Magazine, it becomes a different flavor of Mad Magazine after that. What were your impressions of Al Feldstein's way of managing Mad Magazine and the comedy in in the mag? Those were the mads that I first got. Those were the mats. Why I loved Mad. My first issue was number 175. And I went back and when they did parodies like, let's have a look in the wallet of, and you get Bob Clark draw the wallet of a famous person uh, and you can see the insides, all bits of paper and cards and stuff like that. So these formats that they had under a felt scene, some of them were were genius. They outlived their stay, but still genius. And as you know, Dave Letterman took a lot of those sort of things, that, that kind of humor, and use it in it, the first version of his show. I see what Feldstein did was not as good as what Kurtzman did, but it's what I first met and, and still love. That's fantastic. Well, you know what? I guess our time is up now, but I'd like you to get in one more plug for the book. That's Behaving Madly. It's published by Yo Books under uh, IDW. If you're lucky, there's still a couple of copies on Amazon, but it's been uh, going very well. That's fantastic. And you know what? It's been fantastic talking to you and learning more about everything else but MAD, which there was an awful lot of that out there. Alex, would you like to say anything? Gur, I really loved your book. I actually pre-ordered it, and when it came in, I read it right away, and I learned a lot. I didn't realize how extensive that movement was to create a satire book just to compete with this pioneering book like MAD. So it was a real pleasure, and good luck on the Eisners. Thank you very much. I'll wave if we win. Girl, we wish you the best, buddy. And Craig Yo, who can't be with us this year. I want to say a big shout-out to Craig, because... He's a good and, and close friend of mine. And, and let's mention Klitschia, his wife, who, oh, uh, yes, who did absolutely. tons of work on it as well. Oh, yeah, I'm sure she did. He, he puts her through the ringer, man, because she does such wonderful work. And together, they've produced some wonderful things, and this is one of the best. Thank you, Gurr. See you soon.
Okay, folks, if you thought this was a great podcast, you can't wait till part two. Stay tuned. <laughs>